Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Today, Rotto rounds up the month of April 2020, and I'm going to be talking about 24 games that my wife, Jen, and I have played over the last four weeks. As always, I'll be doing a countdown, starting with our least favorite, ending with a new game of the month. And before I get to that, folks, I've got a little uh, show business to talk about. Uh, April. This month marks the beginning of my ninth year of filming Rotto Runs Through, which is a pretty big deal. Although you'd think I'd wait till my 10th year before I actually, you know, talked about anniversaries or something like that. I'll worry about that next year because at the beginning of this ninth year, the single biggest change to my channel has um, already been rolled out. In case you missed it, for the first time ever, I am not running through stuff alone. I am joined by the first contributor to Rotto Runs Through, Shay Parker. Well, that's not quite fair. I've had co-hosts every once in a while, and of course my wife shows up, but Shay is going a bit above and beyond what everybody else does, because moving forward, he will be filming run-throughs just like me. And I'm so happy to have him. Now, he runs his own YouTube channel, RTFM. Uh, I won't tell you what that stands for, and he does a great job. And um, I am so happy with the first run-through that he has done for a game called Call to Adventure. You can hit that eye up in the top right corner of the screen to go watch. And if you do, I think you will agree that... Well, if you've ever thought, boy, what would a Rotto run-through be like if he was 20 years younger, uh, still had his original dark hair, maybe didn't make quite so many goofs or take-backs, but still got across you know, the core of the experience, talking about the emotions and the decisions that the gameplay evokes, well... Shay is your man. He has done a great job. I and it's interesting. Call to Adventure is a game I had considered covering, but I you know the thing is, folks, there are just too many games, too many games. I can't keep up with everything, and often a game that is interesting to me, I'll just pass because I don't have time. Um, you know, or sometimes uh, I'll pass on a game because it's a theme that my wife Jen won't enjoy, or various and sundry reasons. And so I've always felt kind of bad that I know there are a lot of fantastic games I am not talking about that I am not telling you about on this channel. And Shay is my first step in broadening my horizons. Uh, check out the call to adventure. Uh, run-through he did. And I think you will be as pleasantly surprised as impressed. While you know, having his own voice, uh, he has really been able to adopt my style of filming, uh, you know, complete with green screens and all the rest of it. And I, 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 I'm over the moon. Shay, welcome on board, buddy. I uh, suspect this will be a very beautiful friendship. And... Uh, that's not the end of it. Shay is maybe the first. I'm actually in the process. There's wheels within wheels that are turning to bring in a second contributor. We'll see how that goes in the coming months. But for now, um, you can look for more of Shay. He's already working on his next run-through for a game that's coming soon, uh, next month on Kickstarter. Then again, I was really interested in covering, but 
it just didn't work out, so Shea was able to step up, and you'll be seeing more of him soon. But uh, that is the exciting announcement, and I, I can't tell you how excited I am. But, folks, you have waited patiently long enough. I know what you're here for. You want to watch me count down from 24 to 1, and every step of the way, mention a game in passing. Although, really, you just want to hear me count. So, let me go on ahead and begin the countdown for the games of April 2020 with my number 24. My number 24. Come on. There we go. Fallout Shelter. Another big change. I am starting to use... Oh, what is it? PowerPoint. Microsoft PowerPoint as the uh, the backbone of these lists that I'm doing to try to make it a little bit uh, smoother streamlined. So there might be some teething issues. Uh, please be patient if I run into any technical problems here. But let's talk about my number 24, Fallout Shelter, which is a sharp gateway-style worker placement game. And in fact, when I did my run-through and my final thoughts, I mentioned that it kind of evokes feelings of Lords of Waterdeep. Lords of Waterdeep is a game that encourages total board game novices to play because, oh, did you like uh, the Tolkien movies? Do you like Game of Thrones? You should play this board game. And it becomes a great gateway. Fallout Shelter does the same thing with video game fans because, of course, Fallout is a hugely popular series. And the Fallout Shelter game, I guess, is a pretty popular game as well. So this game is perfect. If you You've got video game fans in your life that you want to bring into the hobby. It does a great job at being a gateway. Now, why then, with its wonderful production and it's got some really clever little worker placement twists and all that, why is it number 24, our least favorite? Well, it's a bit too much of a gateway. Jen and I don't need gateway games. And for us, the uh, the gameplay was a little bit too lightweight, a little bit too on the nose. I could totally see this working in a lot of... I mean, if I was still working in the video game industry, you better believe I would bring this in at lunchtime and I would probably make a lot of converts to the board game hobby with it. But for me and Jen, we would need something a little bit heavier. And if you actually watch my final thoughts for it, I talked about some of the additions they could have made. I would love for the developers to release and official advanced variant rules. With some setup tricks and a few little things here and there, I think this game could become phenomenal for hardcore gamer geeks as well. But as it is, Fallout Shelter is my number 24. It's a great gateway if that's what you're looking for. But now, let's move on to number 23, Yggdrasil Chronicles, which is the follow-up to one of the first modern cooperative designer Euro games. Came out many, many years ago and never quite caught on like Pandemic did, even though it did a lot of really cool stuff. It's kind of almost a uh, almost a worker placement cooperative game, uh, you know, which meant it was really ahead of its time. Now, Yggdrasil Chronicles takes the same core gameplay but really blows it out with an amazing presentation. The most notable element of it being that our board is a three-dimensional representation of Yggdrasil, which is the world tree of Norse mythology that binds all nine realms together with Asgard and Midgard or Earth and Svartalheim and all the rest of them. And in this game, this is a disaster management co-op where we are the gods of Asgard, Thor and... and uh, Odin and Frigg and all of them running around to the different realms trying to push back the forces that would bring around Ragnarok. And it does a good job at that, but what really makes this game special is this three-level tree that represents the nine different locations we can go to is movable. You can actually rotate the different branches of the tree and radically change the layout of the board. So you might have had some really good plans. I'm going to get over there to Svartalheim so I can get the item I need to do this or to fight back Loki or whatever. But then, 
the bad guys surprise you and rotate the tree and you can't get to go where you thought you were going to go and everything changes. And it's really cool. It may look like a gimmick, but it works so well and makes for some cool, fun, surprising, dynamic moments. As well, Yggdrasil Chronicles also has a really great chronicle system where you can play through a campaign storyline and throughout that campaign, your gods will actually level up and gain new abilities and all kinds of stuff. So there's a lot of really sharp things here that I like a lot. So, why did it make number 23? Why didn't it rate higher? Well, you know what? It would have if I had played it as a four-player game. My only real problem with Yggdrasil Chronicles is, as a two-player game, where I'm running around and you're running around, we just have one god each, the situations are not quite as interesting and dynamic. The puzzles to solve to try to figure out the most efficient way to go about, you know, uh, you know, pushing back the forces of darkness and whatnot are just a little bit more straightforward. It's, uh, in short, a little bit too lightweight. And I can imagine... I haven't played as a four-player game, but I can imagine a four-player game where every time, on every player's turn, the tree might change or the bad guys might move. Things are going to be really hopping a lot more. In a two-player game, it's just a little bit more static and, also not for nothing, incredibly easy. And the game doesn't even come with any kind of way to really increase the difficulty level. So that was kind of an odd choice, too. It so desperately needs a hard mode. It says it has a hard mode, but it has an easy mode and then a, a super-duper easy mode. So, those were kind of problems. All that said, what I could say is, while I suspect it's great at higher player counts, it would probably also be fantastic if you want to play as a two-player game, but each player controls two heroes. I suspect that would work great too. That's not something my wife Jen and I are interested in, because we want to feel like we are the heroes, not generals controlling the heroes. So, those are our issues. I could totally see this uh, being a, a, you know, a, a more long-term uh, gaming investment for us if we got to play it as a three- or four-player game. It does have special two-player and solo rules, but I, I, I don't think they quite got the job done, which is too bad, uh, because I, mean, I loved everything. I love the presentation with the 3D tree and, um, and everything. And I also love the attention to detail there is so much Norse mythology dripping in every pore of this game. Every item has a little, um, you know, has its background taken from Norse mythology and the events and the characters. Really cool, fun stuff. Just really, you want to have it with more than two. Or if you're going to play two, each player controls two characters. And I think Every Still Chronicles will, would be a winner. But uh, that's it for my number 23. Let's move on to number 22, which is Kanagawa, which is sent in ancient Japan. And players are competing to paint the most beautiful landscape panorama full of elements like animals and, and people and buildings and trying to score points, doing a bunch of different set collection-y type things. It's a gorgeous production. I love the player board. Is actually I don't know if it's actually made out of real bamboo? Probably not, but it feels like it. And um, the central uh, gameplay mechanism that drives the whole thing is this very clever card draft, where every round, um, some of the cards you can grab uh, come out, and then everybody can decide, well, oh, I should really grab that card. It's perfect for me. But then you're out. If you stay in, more cards will come out. And then more cards will come out. There's like three rows worth of cards. And if you wait long enough uh, in the draft, you could actually get three cards to put into play, which is a very big deal. But if you wait too long, somebody else might get the card or cards that you were desperate to get. So that's where the push your luck comes in. Do I wait 
Do I wait so I can get two cards instead of one, or three cards instead of two? Do I, is anybody else going to steal that one that I want? No, I think I'm safe. Oh no, you took it! And then on top of that, once you get the cards, they're multi-use. So they can either upgrade your painting studio, or they can actually go to the paintings themselves. So there's a lot going on here that I like. Why is it rated so low? Two players. Um, the draft with a push your luck works as a two player game, but it is so obvious that it would be so much more engaging and dynamic if you had at least three or ideally four players so that more cards are coming out. So there are more opportunities to push your luck longer uh, because there are just more options. It works okay as a two player game, but I almost wish they'd had some kind of variance to where three players worth of cards comes out and there's some kind of automated system that will take cards if you don't jump ahead of time to replicate a third player. It works okay, and as a two-player game, because the draft really was a bit more straightforward, there wasn't quite as much dynamism to it, it was very relaxing. But I'll be honest, I've talked about this in the past. Relaxing is not something my wife and I are looking for when we play board games. We want tension. We want angst. We want drama. We want, oh, we want fear that we'll be able to pull off what we want to. And Kanagawa is a two-player game it was just a little bit too chillaxed for us. So that's why it's number 22. Although it's gorgeous, and again, I suspect a higher player counts, it would be a magnifique. Or whatever the uh, Japanese term for that would be. But anyway, that's number 22, Kanagawa. Then we go on to number 21, Bunny Kingdom, which is from designer uh, Richard Garfield. Mr. Magic the Gathering, uh, one of the most influential modern board game designers of all time. Magic the Gathering pretty much is such a huge accomplishment. But here's the thing, folks. Bunny Kingdoms is better. Bunny Kingdoms, honestly. I mean, Richard Garfield's done a lot of great games. I would say Bunny Kingdoms is kind of his magnum opus. It is the best game of his, and I'm even including Netrunner in that. Because it is a card drafting game, and it is so compelling and so well designed, mostly because of one key consideration. When you get your hand of cards from your neighbor and you're trying to decide what to take, you don't take one, you take two cards. And that gives you so much control over the draft. And it is so satisfying to be able to grab a couple of cards and um, you know just scatter Scatter the kingdom with all your cute, adorable little bunny miniatures as you try to make individual fiefdoms and score points in a million different ways. Uh, and here's my problem. Because it's great as a higher player count game. Again, as a three or four player game where you get to play with the rules as intended, I think the game is phenomenal. And even though it's an area control game, we didn't find it to be too cutthroat at all. We thought it was actually pretty Care Bear friendly for our taste. As a two-player game, Mr. Garfield has implemented a variant where he throws away the single most important element of the game. During the draft, I get my hand of cards handed to me by you, and I give you a bunch of cards. And, um, and, I, and I actually, I pull a card out of reserve, so there's always new ones getting seated in as if there was another player. I pick one card to keep for myself, and I pick one card to destroy. And that's okay. I've seen this done in other games. Um, you know, this is basically the Entwife variant that was introduced years ago, and it works okay. I wonder if Richard Garfield actually knows. Did he? Did did? Anyway, hardly matters. Here's my problem. The game is so much better when you're dra when you're drafting too. If I hadn't played it as a four-player game with my niece and nephew, hey, Zane and Zoe who now have the game. We went on ahead and sent it to them because as a two-player game, it becomes so insanely cutthroat, insanely mean-spirited. And at the same time, it's significantly less fun. And here's the thing, folks. 
It's rare that I've seen a game that has a very good two-player implementation. I, and I should say, the two-player works great. But it robs the game of its magic, I think. And it turns it into a dry, chess-like move-counter-move, which is okay, but it, 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 it loses its spark. And you go on BoardGameGeek and you go to the forums, there's at least half a dozen very well-considered two-player variants where fans of the game are trying to fix the problem that Richard Garfield introduced. And... And it's a shame, because actually, it recently got a very cool big box expansion. I thought, for sure, Richard Garfield will hear the pleas of all the two-player Bunny Kingdom fans out there and make an official two-player variant that keeps the magic in. He didn't. He doubled down on the super hardcore, mean, chess-like variant, which, again, is it's good. It's solid. I And uh, I have no desire to play it, because the game is so much better at higher player counts, which is so sad, and it's why Bunny Kingdom is my number 20. Okay, moving right along to number 20, Clank in Space, the Cyber Station 11 expansion. And now, before I go any farther, folks who are listening to this on the podcast, I have to apologize. I'm going to have to pause for a bit and talk about what viewers of the video are seeing on screen. Because you might be, if you're watching this on YouTube, saying, hey, where's the video of us playing this? Here's the deal, folks. I have been doing these roundups now for how long? Geez, forever, it feels like. And every month, part of the process for making these roundups is getting out all the games that Jen and I played, but that I did not do a run-through for, and then spending hours and hours and hours recording little five to ten minute long snippets of just me playing by myself for the sole reason of having some moving video in the background during the roundup. And... I can't do it anymore, folks. I cannot do it, Captain. So, from now on, moving forward in the roundups, if you if I get to a game and you see a static image, that means my wife and I played it. I'm about to tell you about our feelings of it, but I have not filmed a run-through. And this is important. I really need to make this visually clear because not a month goes by that somebody doesn't ask, hey, I see that you filmed a run-through for this game. Where's the run-through? I can't find it. And I always then have to spend time explaining, well, I didn't really film a run-through. Every month I spend hours and blah, blah, blah. So I'm just done with it. And here's what I'm doing. This image you're looking at is taken from my Instagram account. There's another Year 9 um, announcement. Folks, starting with Year 9, I'm a... Are, are we called grammars? I don't know. I'm gramming. I don't know what the terminology is, but for the last few weeks, every time Jen and I play a new game, I take a picture of it and post it to Instagram. So, go ahead and subscribe. It's at instagram.com slash through, or hit that I up in the top right corner of the screen to go check it out. Subscribe, and you will get basically sneak peeks of what I'll be filming later on. Um, because, of course, we play it and then we film it, but now there's an extra step. I post to Instagram about it. So, anyway... Sorry, just some more housework. I probably should have said that right up front. Um, but anyway, now let's continue talking about my number 20, Clank in Space Cyber Station Edition, which is the, I think this is the second big box expansion for Clank in Space, and it does a lot of really cool stuff. There are things, I mean, uh, my favorite thing here is a new type of card that gets mixed in with all the other ones in Clank in Space, which is a deck building game. Uh, I forget what they're called, Cyber Augments or something like that. These are cards that go into your deck, you can play them. They're very expensive to buy, considering they don't do very much. But the important thing is when you play them, if you have any of those space crystals, if you've earned any of them, you can spend them to lock those cards into place, thereby thinning your deck and giving yourself a permanent upgrade. And that may not sound like much, but in a fast-paced race like Clank in Space, that is huge. These are 
hugely powerful, and I really, really enjoy them. They add a lot more variety from game to game, depending on well, which cyber augments am I going to get this time. And it's great. And that's not all. There's just a bunch of really new, cool new cards, a totally new board that is much more... Uh, circuitous. It's it's not the same. Hey, go all the way to the right and then head all the way back to the left that you know standard Clank and Space has. So that's a really nice change of pace. And there's a few other things here and there. Um, so it sounds like I love it, right? Why is it number twenty? Um, here's my problem. There are two issues. One is that this expansion does not play well with others because. Uh, those wait, those cyber augments are so powerful that if one player ends up getting some early in the game and then just through random luck of the draw, no other ones show up, that player has a huge leg up over everybody else. And so they can be pretty swingy. And that's okay, though, because when I say Cyber Station doesn't play well with other expansions, the rules are very clear. You should not mix and match it with the expansions that have come previously. And that is sad, because of course, the more stuff you get, you want to mix it all together and get a whole bunch of combinations. But the rules recommend not doing that, and I agree. Because then that means it's less likely that the Cyber Augments will come out on a regular basis, and it means somebody is likely to get some, and other players will suffer. So, that is something to bear in mind. Like I said, it's okay. It just means, really, hey, as another setup for Clank is now, okay, I got to pull the all these expansion cards out, and I got to put these other expansion cards in, because you can't just have a big mess of cards. The other thing is, the new board is awesome. I love the layout. I love the way it you know, gives you kind of more variety about how you explore and race. But a new thing it adds is additional escape pods that are only worth half the points, but they are right next to the uh, treasures, the artifacts that we're trying to steal. And this may not sound like a big deal, but this radically changes the core DNA of the race of this game. And it really messes with uh, things in a way that I wasn't quite keen on, because it definitely encourages more slow-paced... You know what? I'm going to spend more time deck building and less time racing to the finish line because, hey, there's an easy finish line to reach. I'll always be able to get to that one. Even if somebody else tries to do the fast end, um, the other player will say, well, that's okay, because I can always get the quick and easy escape rather than the good escape, the better escape. And I'm really kind of bummed by that. I'm I'm just not keen on that at all. And um, it's really mostly a two-player issue, though, because... No matter the player count, there are two of these special escape pods. And that's the problem. Because in a two-player game, that means no matter what, you can always get one. A four-player game, you would probably still feel the tension and the fear of not being able to get out alive because everybody took the easy escape pods and now you're left alone trying to get to the hard ones. But in a two-player game, you can always get to the easy escape pod and that just radically changes the overall feel. And I found it slows the game down in a way that kind of hurts the core Clank experience. Because at the end of the day, it is a race. Um, So, mixed feelings. I'm still happy to have it, mostly because I love all these new cards, but I think, unless there's some kind of, you know, a variant from the designers coming down the road, I probably won't use this new board as much as I would like. But still, on the whole, really great stuff in my number 20, Clank in Space! Cyber Station 11. Okay, then we move on to number 19, The Liberation of Reaperg, which is a spin-off from one of my favorite cooperative adventure games of all time, Legends of Andor. This game actually takes place in between chapters 4 and 5 of the Legends of Andor campaign, which is a cool little bit of trivia. Not that it matters. You don't need to have played Andor. And this is another 
firefighting style co-op where players are running around an environment. There's all kinds of dangers and terrors and threats amassing in all the different locations. And we have to smartly decide, right, you go over there and take care of that. I'll join you. And then we can combine our forces and do this other thing. And we'll trade our these items back and forth. And oh no, more bad guys have come out and it ruins all our plans. You know, this is the kind of stuff we've seen a lot. Um, although it, it, it definitely mixes up the formula in a lot of ways because you can just instantly travel wherever you want. So, you know, board movement is not that big of a deal. Imagine Pandemic where you can always fly wherever you want to go. So it's more about smartly puzzling out um, which bad guys to defeat at any time, which items to use at any time, because pretty much everything you do in this game triggers events. You know, unlike most co-op games where, oh, events happen once per round because you draw a card, here, events happen mostly because you fight bad guys. And it works really well. It's a great puzzle, great art, uh, great uh, background, because I love Andor. Why is it number 19? Um, It's the same as Yggdrasil. As a two-player game... It's a little flat. It's a little bit less dynamic than it ideally could be because with only two heroes running around, often the the puzzle to solve is pretty straightforward. And again, if you had four heroes running around, I suspect this game would explode with combinatorial options and interesting pickles that you get into with multiple ways to solve the problem and everybody having to work together to figure out what the best way to go is. And again, exactly like Yggdrasil Chronicles before it, I think this game would sing as a two-player game if you're willing to control two heroes at once. Jen and I don't want to do that. I totally think it's doable. Same with Yggdrasil Chronicles, because controlling any one of these characters is not a super heavy, complex task like Gloomhaven or something like that. So being able to control two characters, totally doable. And again, if you're willing to do it, if you want to be a general instead of a character in the world... If you, uh, I think Liberation of Reedburg is a phenomenal two-player co-op, and I think it's great at higher player counts, which means it doesn't fit for us, which is why it's my number 19 of the month. And it's a heartbreaker because I was so excited about this. It's from uh, the designer of Kashgar, Hanleder Seedenstrasse, or Merchants of the Silk Road, which is one of my favorite, favorite um, engine-building games of all time. And he's done a great design here. Go watch my final thoughts. I actually talk about what I wished he would have done to make the two-player game more compelling than the way it was implemented. But, you know, it's implemented the way it is. It's okay, um, but it's really better with more players. So that's why Liberation of Reedburg is my number 19. Then we go on to number 18, Telepathic. There's an interesting backstory here. Uh... This game was not one I was seeking out, but when Isaac Childress, the designer of Gloomhaven, sent me the prototype for Frosthaven so I could cover it last month, which I covered in last month's roundup, he also included a copy of Telepathic. And uh, apparently it was made, designed by a friend of his, and he thought Jen and I would really like it. And he said, hey, I'm just sending this to you as a gift. Um, you know, no expectations of covering it or anything like that. Just thought it would be a good fit for you because he knows how much Jen and I love imperfect communication in co-ops. It's one of our favorite things. And that's what telepathic is all about. So Jen and I did play it. Played it a few times and actually liked it quite a bit. It's going to be a keeper. But why doesn't it rate higher then? Well, let me tell you a bit more about what it is. This is a game where we're doing... You know, remember those... ESP experiments that you can see stock footage of from the 50s and 60s where somebody holds up a card and the uh, the test subject can't see it and they have to read the mind to know, oh, that's three wavy lines or whatever. That's what we're doing. We are trying to read each other's minds in this game. And because we each have a secret objective. My objective might be I have to get three circles in a row uh, in this grid of symbols. And your objective might be I have to get three green tiles in a row. And of course, we can't tell each other what we want to do. 
And in fact, we don't actually even have to do that. We just have to intuit and understand what each other's goal is. And how do we communicate then? Because we're not allowed to talk at all. It's an ESP uh, test. All I can do is on my turn, I can draft from a series of command cards and give one to you. And that is a command you have to do. And these commands are moving tiles around, doing slide, tile, shuffle, puzzly type movements. And the reason I'll give you one is because I identify, oh, if I give her this and she plays it over here, that means she would get three circles in a row. And I know she, and I already figured out she doesn't want three pluses in a row. Does she want three uh, circles or does she want three uh, squares? Uh, this would let me determine. And then I see what you do with it. And if you do it to make three circles in a row, I could then intuit that might be what you want. But maybe you still want the other one. Or maybe you didn't see that you were going to do that. Maybe you were trying to communicate something else to me. That's the core of the game. We communicate by giving each other silent instructions and then hope the other player intuits what we're trying to do. It's a cool idea. And while it's pretty abstract, I think they found a theme that fits perfectly because it really does feel like, oh, we're doing ESPN things and trying to read each other's minds. It's cool. It's neat. It's fun. Why didn't it rate higher? My only problem is, like I said, we played this several times because it's really quick as well. And what we found is, depending on the random setup of the board and the random commands that come out that we can draft from, the game can actually be very challenging. And it really requires a lot of trust, a lot of intuition, or it can be incredibly easy. And, oh, wow, yeah, I figured it out in, in three turns, well before we were ever close to the end. And so there's a lot of swinginess. Now, that's okay, because this is an under-20-minute game, even at full length. But... I do have to knock it down a peg that there, I'm not even sure what he'd be able to do in the design to ensure that it always provides an interesting and dynamic challenge. Because sometimes you get insane luck of the draw where the game just bends over backwards to be easy to win. So that's why I didn't rate it higher. But that said, we still enjoyed it. And we might hold on to it. I'm not sure yet. But anyway, it's a really sharp little game. And apparently, if you get two copies of it, you can play as a four-player game, which I haven't looked into. I don't know how that works. But anyway, that's my number 18, Telepathic. Then we got number uh, 17, Yinsi. And oh my gosh, folks. This is by far the heaviest game we played this month. This is one of the heaviest games we've played in years. This is definitely in the same realm as Lisboa or uh, Madeira. It's a big, sprawling, uber-heavy uh, Euro, which is all about, um, you know, it's set in in um, pre-industrial, I think, or maybe just the early day, yeah, early days of industrial, in the Industrial Revolution in China, and the whole game is about setting up farms to harvest resources, to process them in factories that we build so that we can sell them to the foreign market or to the current market or help the war effort, and basically convert goods into victory points through all kinds of machinations. And it does that very, very well. It's very standard Euro-style goals, but with some very cool, unique mechanisms. And um, we liked it a lot. It's a really great example. The reason it rates so high is it, like Madeira before it, or Lisboa, is one of those games that goes just a little bit too into the deep end of the pool to where the grind that my wife loves. She loves playing Euros because she gets to grind through all the machinations and choices. For her, the grind kind of ground her down. It was a bit too big. And also, by the way, too long. It is a very long game. Um, so it wasn't quite a fit for us. But yeah, uh, Vita Lasarda fans might want to seek this out because it does a lot of really cool stuff. And the whole central really cool conceit. There's two big cool things about it. One is how you select actions. Because at the beginning of a round, 
Um, you get a handful of cards, and each card tells you how many work when you play it. How many workers will you add to your overall worker placement pool? Plus, how many actions will you do from one of these key actions that's on your own little board? And usually, or actually always, the cards either give you a lot of workers and a few actions, or a lot of actions and few workers. And so every turn, you play one of these cards to either get a lot of workers that you can deploy out into the world and do a lot of stuff on the main board, or you use a lot of actions so you can trigger your own actions. But once you've done that, you cannot place another card in that slot, and you've still got other cards. So you have to do a lot of planning. And it's a really cool system. Now, I'm going to do a run-through for this next month, so you'll get to see it. Uh, But suffice to say, it's really cool. The other very cool thing about this game is kind of has almost a brass-type vibe, because there's so much interplay between players. The resources I farm, you can use to run the factories that I build, and we both benefit from it. There's lots of interplay between players and sharing of resources, even though this is a competitive game. So it it really comes alive in that way, and it's got a really great action selection system. But like I said, for us, spoiler alert for the run-through I'll do next month, too long and probably a bit heavier than we're looking for, which is why we've criminally rated number 17 because if you know if I were heavy cardboard I'd probably rate this in my top 10 of the month maybe even my top 5 if I were that type of player um but that is currently number 17 yinsi which I believe is chinese for silver which is the number 1 resource of the game yinsi okay moving on to number 16 manitoba which is a game that has been on my shelf for a couple of years now and I've really wanted to play it because I, I, you know, because it, it's a gorgeous-looking game. It's very bright, colorful, inviting. Uh, it's got great components. And it has a really cool gameplay system. Uh, you know, what? let's just talk about the gameplay first before I talk about the butt part. Um, the it, it's 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 another one of these. Hey, harvest stuff from the land to be a, to be and, and work your way up progress tracks to be able to trigger all kinds of combo moves to complete objectives and score points. Typical Euro-y type stuff with a really great, um, you know, uh, First Nations Native American theme, weaving it all together. And the central action selection mechanism is a totem, a totem pole, which is comprised, if I recall correctly, of five different discs that are stacked up like a totem pole. And each one is a different color, and the colors represent different actions we can do. You can do a blue action, or a white action, or a brown action, or whatever. And say it's my turn, and I'm so desperate to do a brown action. But the brown disc is in the middle of the totem pole. Now, what I have to do is, I have to activate that brown disc. So, if it's in the middle, and say there's a blue and a white on top of it, I grab all three of those, the blue and the white and the brown, because I had to reach into the middle of the totem pole. I put this on my board to build a totem pole. I flip it upside down so that the brown is on top, and that means, hey, I'm doing a double brown action, because I'm the active player. I get to do a double brown action. To get that brown disc, I had to grab the yellow and the blue, and I'm giving every other player around the table the opportunity to do a single brown or blue or white action. And... That may not sound like much, but what if you were desperate, desperate to do that blue action, and I just gave it to you? And you know what? I didn't have to. I didn't have to go after that brown action. I could wait till later, and I could have done the white action, which means I only would have taken the top tile off the totem pole. I would have gotten a double white action. Everybody else would have gotten a single white action. I'd prevent you from getting it, because I know sooner or later, somebody will let me do the brown action, and I didn't need to do a double brown action. I could get by with a single brown action, and I couldn't let you have that. This is a brilliant system. It's kind of hard to describe. It's easier to see in action, which is why, sadly, I probably won't be doing a run-through for it anytime soon. I mean, I've put it up to a vote many times over the years, and voters have always turned it down because of the other reason. So anyway, from a gameplay perspective, 
Uh, it, it's it's a great Euro with a really cool, very, very unique central mechanism that I haven't seen before that's nice and interactive in a positive, upbeat way. And I like all of that stuff a lot. There's, I have a little bit of a problem because a lot of times in games like this where you know they have that Puerto Rico thing where, hey, on my turn, everybody gets to do something. Uh, you know, Oftentimes they work, but sometimes I find... If I were playing this as a four-player game, I would get the super action once every four turns, and the other 75% of the time, I would get a weak action, and I would have to deal with that, um, you know, and 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 deal with that pressure. In a two-player game, I get to do the super action 50% of the time, and so that kind of just makes it a little bit less tense. We still enjoyed it, but I could definitely see it working better at a higher player count. But even still, that's not the issue with the game. Uh, the game's named Manitoba, which is one of the regions of Canada, the central... I think it's just right in the middle of Canada. And like I said, it's based on uh, you know Native American peoples. And the game casts you in the role of the Cree Nation, which is a First Nation people uh, that I guess is in the Manitoba area. Here's the problem. The Cree do not have totem poles in real life. The rule book also talks about majestic mountains of Manitoba. There are no majestic mountains in Manitoba. And it's just so obvious that the developers of this game really phoned in the theme, did not give it a second thought. And in fact, the developer, uh, publisher, said in an interview, yeah, I just picked it because I like the, the sound of the word Manitoba. And you might think, what's the big deal? Um, you know, yeah, so they, they got it wrong. Uh, you know, they, they ascribed the, the, the wrong uh, societal aspects to a particular culture. And, you know, who cares? Well, okay, two things. One, can you imagine a game called Berlin, which the central mechanism is about um, moving the Eiffel Tower around? I mean, that would get laughed out of town. It would be completely unacceptable to everybody. What is wrong with these developers? They just blithely say that the Eiffel Tower is in the middle of Berlin. That's ridiculous. They couldn't even be bothered to do... They don't even have to do the research. I think we would all look at that and say, that is laughable. That is poor. They should get dinged for that. That They couldn't even bother with the barest bit of verisimilitude or research into the real world. You know what? That is 100% applicable here. Just because it's not a culture that the majority of gamers or game developers are familiar with doesn't mean that it doesn't deserve the same level of respect and attention that we would give without a second thought. If you are making a game that is themed after building theme parks like Disneyland, you wouldn't have the whole game be about monster truck rallies. It just wouldn't make sense. And players say, what? This makes no, this is just a gobbledygook. But because the developers figured, ah, oh, you know what? Eh, they're all Native Americans. They're all Indians. It's fine. They all have totem bowls, right? No, they don't. So that's one problem. And you could just chalk it up saying, well, that's just really stupid. But hey, the game's still good. But there's the extra problem that the uh, the, the Cree Nation and the other First Peoples, uh, or you know, nations in Canada and America, that's not uh, meant towards the United States, are suffering so badly from institutional racism and putting down. I mean, I, I looked this up. The 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 Cree people of Man of Manitoba, they have some of the highest suicide rates in the world, and so I just try to imagine. That say, I mean, you're in a bad circumstance, your government, um, I mean, you're at the bottom of literally the totem pole in terms of importance from your government. It's been a national shame for decades, for generations, and it seems like there's no hope in sight. You're doing protests, nothing happens, and then, wow, this game is going to come out, and it's all about us, and you know, our background and our history. And then you get the game, and it's like, 
they butchered us. They didn't even care. And they ascribed stuff to us. That, I mean, it's like, how could you do that? I mean, it's... It, I, you know, I mean, to, to be so blithe about, um, you know, the, the situation of marginalized cultures in this world and to not even do just the tiniest smidgen, just the simplest Google search would have revealed that, you know what, there were different tribes you could have ascribed this to. And yes, you couldn't use the title of the game that you really like the sound of, but it would have actually been more appropriate to the gameplay you'd come up with. And I found it very distasteful. Hugely distasteful. And it's interesting. Um, I wasn't alone. This was such a big deal that two years ago when this game came out, this was actually a major news item in Canada. That German developer doesn't give an F about the plight of, you know, of, you know, and and then Reiner Stockhausen, who I've met in real life and is a wonderful, warm, good-hearted person. he, He actually did an interview where he said, yeah, you know what? From a European perspective, it's all the same. And it's like, whoa, that is so insanely insensitive. So this is why I have avoided covering Manitoba for two years now, or almost two years. But I really wanted to play it. And it's a shame. It's a great game. The gameplay is really solid. The production is stellar. And it is. I think it's ultimately going to be forgotten. I, you know, it's, it's pretty much not really getting much support. And everybody's like, let's just forget about it. And I understand why, and it mostly just makes me sad, because it's a what could have been, and unfortunately more of a what is, and it's very reflective of the real world and our ability as a species to not walk a mile in the, in the, in the shoes of another and understand their worldview. So it's kind of sad, but all that aside... <laughs> Whoa. Uh, very, very sorry about that, folks. It's my number 16 of the month, Manitoba. Let's uh, move on to number 15, Curators, which, by the way, is my first paid preview. So please bear in mind, I was paid to cover this for the Kickstarter campaign. Uh, my opinions are my own. It's just something you should uh, remember. Uh, and I gotta say, Jen, I really like this. This is a very clever build up of the best museum you can and find the best artifacts from around the world to put on display to score points based off objectives that you've got kind of game. And the whole thing, actually, based on what I just said before, this is kind of a pretty problematic uh, subject matter as well, isn't it? But let's just, okay, I, I can't do an entire social justice hour on the inequities of theme. Anyway, so. Uh, It's not the first, it won't be the last, and it's a very, very, very good game. The core idea of it, it's another very clever Euro-style action selection mechanism. You've got these five discs that are two-sided. On one side of a disc, there might be the archaeology, Indiana Jones action. On the other side, there might be the architect, build action. And over on his disc, on one side, there might be the banker action. On the other side, there might be, I don't remember exactly which ones, but there might be the uh, auction action. So anyway, on your turn, you get to do one action. And you can either flip one of these discs to trigger what it does, or if you have two discs with the same action, you can flip both of them and do a double action, which is twice as powerful. And that's what you want to do. But to do that, I can see that, okay, I really want to do a double archaeology action, but only one of them is face up, which means I've got to do an auction action right now so that I can flip that, so I can next turn can do a double archaeology action. But I don't want to do an uh, an auction action right now because I'm not really ready. I don't have the money I need to buy the thing I want from the auction house. So maybe I should do the banker action first. But that will get rid of my other archaeology action. And so on. So this is a... with a 
very simple system. You know, it's very easy to understand and intuit, and yet it leads to very interesting, fun uh, puzzles to solve of what order are you going to achieve things while racing. Because, of course, while I'm just trying to figure out how to actually build that room I want to build with peak efficiency, meanwhile, you just went and built it. And now it's gone, and all my plans have got to change. Really sharp, very fun, very fast. My only real complaint, the thing that kept it at number 15, is the first couple of rounds kind of play out the same. There's a couple of core paths you can start with. And it's really not until like the, I don't know, the the fourth round or so that things really start branching out. And I would have liked to see something that could have been done in design so it feels a bit more dynamic right from round one. Don't get me wrong though, that's not, I mean, it, it, it's still a great game. I would happily play it right now. Um, but you know, that's just my one little complaint that keeps it out of my top 10 because otherwise it is totally a top 10 candidate. Really sharp game. My number 15, Curators. Then we go on to number 14, Traintopia, which, you know, my vote for what games I'm going to cover in May just finished. And good news, Traintopia was on the list. I will be filming a run-through for this. So uh, for now, I'll just try to explain it really quick. This is a tile-laying game where we're building up rail routes and, um, you know, putting uh, tourists on them or commuters on them or uh, special types of trains on them so that by the end of the game, we can score lots of points by building up all these different routes by laying lots of tiles, Carcassonne style. Except not really. If there's one central rule that tile layers like Carcassonne always follow, it is always that you must place a new tile adjacent to an existing tile. They have to line up, you know, in a grid or hexes, you know, whatever shape they might be. Not Traintopia. When I put a new tile down, it can it can be it must be next to another tile, but only halvesies. It has to half overlap instead of perfectly lining up, so everything's perfectly symmetrical. You can create this really funky organic um, development of tracks that go off in all kinds of different directions. And this is definitely a very different feeling game because of just that one little change. And I gotta say, Jen and I liked it a lot. I mean, there's no better word for it than organic. It feels much more natural and less like a game. Because at the end of a game of Carcassonne, yeah, you've got a nice board, but wow, everything just lines up perfectly. Whereas at the end of Traintopia, you've got this weird mishmash of stuff that you were trying to make all these round pegs fit into square holes because you are constantly only half lining up tiles. And that creates a really unique feel. It's a very sharp game. We really like it. You can hear more about it when I cover it next month. My number 14, Traintopia. Then my number 13, Small Islands, which is another tile laying game. And it gets back to the normality of tile laying games, which is, hey, you put a tile down next to an existing tile. None of this crazy half and half business. And um, what we're trying to do while we tile lay is build this beautiful archipelago full of small islands. And unlike a lot of modern tile laying games where everybody's working on their own little individual thing, like Traintopia right before this, in this one, it gets back to the Carcassonne idea where, hey, we're building to one common area. And I've got plans for how I want to expand that particular island, but oh no! You put a tile there and that messes it up. So, um, what makes this game really interesting is, uh, you know, the game goes through, I forget, three or four rounds that we're doing some building and then we do some mid-game scoring. And we have secret goals that we've drawn in the form of cards that we're trying to mid-game score. And um, so, as I'm building up islands, and you know, it's an archipelago, we're building up islands all over the place. If you can start to figure out, what am I trying to do? 
what am I trying to accomplish with these islands, i.e., what is my secret objective, then you could make smart moves either to block me off, or even better, knowing what type of island I'm going to build, you could use that to your advantage so that that island will also work in your favor as well. And it's really sharp. It's a fun, fast little game. Um, and uh, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of variety that comes through all the different objectives you're going to do. The fact that you are not just scoring once all the way at the end, but you have these multiple scoring sections throughout really ratchets up the tension because you just don't feel like you have enough time. And here's the beauty part. If you don't have enough time, don't score it. You know, let it pass. I didn't quite get this island where I wanted to go at the first scoring phase. I'm just going to let it go so I can keep building that island up and I'll get it on the next scoring phase. But you're running out of time and you've just given up one of your few opportunities to score. That's a big danger. But it might be worth it because did you want to just score it right now and get five points? Or do you want to build it up bigger and score 18 points off this island? Even if it means that's one less chance to score over the course of the whole game. Very sharp. A lot of fun, tension-filled moments. uh, A little bit of player screwage. That's I think really the only reason it doesn't rate higher is I mean there there are definitely some elements of the game where it's very easy oh that's what you're doing yeah I'm gonna ruin your plan there and it at no cost to me um, so that, that that got a little bit under our skin which is what kept it out of the top ten but it's still a very sharp very fun very fast and super tension filled tile land game small islands. Then we move on to number 12, Steamfall Genesis, which is my second paid preview I'm talking about today. Uh, and this one goes on Kickstarter in the first week of May. So you'll be seeing this coming soon. Uh, so you'll see my run-through coming soon. And I was actually talking to Tom Vassell of the Dice Tower about Steamfall, because he was curious about it. He hadn't played it. And it occurred to me, the best way to describe this game is, imagine somebody set out to make an Arkham Horror or Eldritch Horror-style big, sprawling adventure game. Uh, you know, with all kinds of threats to fight, and ways to level up, and, and cool gadgets that you can build, and um, you know, neat narrative events that happen. But, instead of being um, designed by a Richard Launius or you know, you know, an Ameritrash designer, imagine it being designed by a hardcore Euro designer, like Vita Lasarda. That's what you get with Steamfall Genesis. This is a really rich, dense, atmospheric, uh, wor- you know, world exploration game as we travel through the steampunk world of Steamfall and try to have adventures and level our characters up and build cool gadgets and score as many points as we can. By the way, the game comes with two modes, a cooperative and a competitive. And unlike a lot of games where that doesn't work out, where really they should have just done one, in this game they both work great. Um, anyway, that's Steamfall. Steamfall Genesis is the first big box expansion. It adds a bunch of stuff. Tons of new gadgets, uh, two new playable characters, and two new modes. A new co-op and competitive version. And here's why I like Steamfall Genesis better than the original Steamfall. And I thought the original Steamfall was cool, but too big and too heavy, and there was too much stuff going on, and it would just make your brain explode, because it was so complex. And yet, at its heart, so pure and simple, because it has this awesome action... Sele- I've been said action selection mechanisms a lot in this game, haven't I? Well, that's basically what that's what differentiates Euro games, is the way that you select to do actions. And in this one, it, the action selection mechanism is tied to how you level your character up. It's really cool. You'll be able to see my run-through for it soon. But, or you can go back and watch my rundown I did for the original Steamfall a couple of years ago. Um, but what Genesis does is these two new modes, they help streamline the experience and let you as a player focus. And the original Steamfall was very much a sandbox. You could do a 
billion different things. And the game says, hey, just go and do whatever. But what you're trying to do is incredibly complex and very challenging. Now, it's still a challenging game with a lot of rich avenues of exploration. But whichever the two mo- new modes you're playing, you are much more um, directed. You have very clear goals and... I think Steamfall Genesis is the better introduction to the Steamfall system. And I kind of wish for the poor developer that he had shipped Steamfall two years ago with the Genesis content, and this expansion now shipped with the much more complex and elaborate modes that came with the original game. So, it's great. Steamfall is now better than ever. Uh, you'll be able to see my run-through for it soon. And I mean, I could go on and on and on about all the really... I mean, I love the way they do the narrative stuff in the new competitive mode. One of the coolest ways to integrate na- narrative into an adventure game that I've seen in any game. Uh, really cool like mini-campaigns that last only one round. Super neat stuff. You'll be able to see, though, when my run-through for it comes soon. And that's my number 12 of the month, Steamfall Genesis. Remember, that was a paid preview. Okay, then we go on to number 11, Fairy Trails. This is the second game that I have gotten my hand that has come out within the last year that is from designer Uwe Rosenberg that is for two players only. And I gotta say, I'm loving this new look, Uwe. Uh, you know, Uwe Rosenberg, of course, is Mr. Agricola, Mr. Caverna, Mr. Uh, Fields of Arl, Mr. Uh, Feast for Odin, known for Melahav, uh, you know, known for these huge monster Euro worker placement games with tons of stuff going on and um, wonderful all. But more recently... Uve's really kind of turned over a new leaf and has just been putting year after year polyomino game after polyomino Tetris-style land game. He's just been really on a spate of these, and there's been a lot of really good stuff there, too. Although not all of them really landed for me in Gen. But these last two games, Fairy Trails, my number 11 of the month, and the other one, which I'll be talking about in a bit, is a little bit further on the list. These are for two players only, and they are radically different radically different than anything else Uwe has ever done. He's really pushing himself, and I gotta say, I am super impressed that the man... It's like a little um, a little Uwe renaissance going on in here, and I love him. What is Fairy Trails? This is a very simple, or clean, and classic two-player game where we're laying tiles to build up routes throughout a forest. Routes that either let the gnome player let's say that's me, or the elf player, you, score lots of points because when a given route for one of the two players is completely closed off, you can score a lot of points off of it. And we're racing to score a certain number of points first. So, um, you know, we've seen games like that before. But the interesting thing is, every card, they're not tiles, they're cards, that we put out to expand routes, expands both our routes. It's unavoidable. Every time I try to work to get a longer route that I'm going to be able to close off and score a lot of points, I am invariably creating more opportunities for you as well, because our routes are so crazily intertwined. Um, you know, it just ends up looking like a big bowl of spaghetti by the time the game is over, and it's really awesome. Um, if you're looking at the picture, uh, my my picture-taking skills on Instagram are not the greatest. It's very easy to tell the routes apart, uh, because one route is very purple, one route is very yellow, but uh, my color on my cheap Motorola phone didn't pick that up. But if you're seeing the picture, it's really easy to tell this stuff apart and try to puzzle out, well, do I keep on expanding this route? Or, oh my gosh, you've actually almost finished route for me. I could finish that route. Or, oh my gosh, if you finish that route, you're going to score seven, eight, nine points. Yikes! And you're about to do it, too. You know what I can do? 
I'll expand your route and put a branch in it. So now, all of a sudden, it's going to be twice as hard for you to um, close off that route. So there can be a little bit of denial. Although, really, I might have just put that there because I'm trying to expand my own route. While at the same time, it's interesting. How often is it that, hey, I've just given you more opportunities to score points? It's just going to take you longer. And if I can get my stuff done before you finish this new branching path I created for you, ah, it's super sharp, very fun. And here's the interesting thing. I know I said earlier... I forget which game. Oh, it was Kanagawa. As a general rule, Jen and I have discovered we don't like to relax in games. We like super... I mean, you've seen over and over again, the complaints I've had about games are, in a two-player game, there's just not as much tension uh, because it's a little bit too straightforward um, with the way the two-player implement works here. For some reason, in this game, this is super chillax, super relaxing, super laid back, and we loved it. So at least now, I finally have an answer. If anybody ever asks me, hey, uh, Rado, what's yours and Jen's favorite game to relax with? It's my number 11 of the month, Fairy Trails, which, by the way, you'll be seeing a run-through for next month. Voters already chose it. Okay, let's move on to my top 10 of the month. Number 10, Destination Neptune 2nd Edition. And I am so happy about this. Uh, Destination Neptune I covered many, many years ago, and I liked it a lot. I thought it was a very sharp game. Had a few little problems with it. Um, and, uh, you know, we played it. It's all about, you know, kind of a a realistic hard science view of what it's going to take for mankind to colonize the solar system, you know, in, in the next few hundred years. And it was a very sharp game. The core card gameplay was very Puerto Rico-esque, where on my turn, I have to pick one of the cards from my hand, and I get to do it, and everybody else gets to do a weaker version of that action. And it worked great. At some point, the designer, Ian Brody, uh, a couple of years later, after it came out, went on Kickstarter with the second edition. And all it was, it was not a full copy of the game. It was just a new deck of cards and a new rule book, basically. And, and a couple little tiles to put on the board to expand some stuff. I backed it, and then I never got a chance to play it. Uh, but I finally played it last month. And I gotta say, oh my gosh, it blows the socks off of Destination Neptune. It, this second edition so radically transforms in every way to the better the original game that I already liked because it drops the Puerto Rico style. Hey, I get to play one card a turn and everybody does, which gave the game kind of a more slow and glacial pace as we did lots of small baby steps. Now, the new system, I'm still playing the same cards to do the same actions for sending out probes to, you know, to celestial bodies and investing and all and doing technology and stuff like that. But now, um, to play cards, I can play as many as I want on a turn, not just one, but to play a card, I have to discard a card. And by discarding that card, I put it in a public pool that means any other player could grab it. And if I know you are desperate for money, I do not want to discard this investment card to be able to play the research card I really need to play because I'll be giving you that investment. Ah! But I don't need any more money. What am I going to do? And you know, if I got a bunch of cards to dump, I could play a bunch of cards on my turn. So the game speeds up. Uh, it's so much quicker. Never mind the fact that it's got a really great fast start option. So the game starts out with um, some of the uh, planets already done the research. You can get going quicker. There's a less slow buildup. And maybe the coolest unique player power system I've ever seen. So many wonderful ideas. I still have one complaint, which is was my original complaint. The game is still a little bit longer than we'd like, but still, it's much, much better, and it's fantastic, and I'm so sorry, because very soon, you will never be able to get this. He only printed out enough for the Kickstarter run he did. He had a few copies. They're on a sale for Etsy right now. I suspect a month from now, they'll all be gone forever. So, um, but if you like 
uh, more hard science, while not being like high frontiers, crazy, super brain busty heavy. This is still a nice, you know, midweight euro that anybody that likes uh, you know board games could be able to play. But oh, it's so much fun! And now with the second edition, it's so great. It's my number ten of the month. Destination Neptune, 2nd edition. Then we move on to number 9, Angkor, which is from Space Cowboys, which, as a publisher, really made their name with the release of Splendor. And I imagine, if you're watching this show, you're a board game geek and you've heard of Splendor before. If not, Splendor is one of the ultimate modern gateway games. Super light, abstract, fast-playing, engine-building game uh, that uh, rose to success because of its really elegant and sharp gameplay, but also because of its amazing gameplay components, because it came with all these poker chips that you used for resources, and it just felt good to hold those poker chips. Years later, Space Cowboys is back with Angkor, and it also is a fairly abstract, really simple, easy-to-teach, gateway-style game with solid gameplay it comes with awesome poker chips. And so they're trying to... I don't know if they're trying purposely trying to recapture that magic, but I hope they do. Because for my money, Angkor is so much more engaging. So much more fun to play than a Splendor. Gasp! Yes, it, it is a Splendor killer coming from the publisher of Splendor. And, uh, you know, basically in this game, we... the Again... We are grabbing these poker chips that represent resources. We're using them to buy tiles so that we can do some basic tile-laying gameplay and expanding our little tile territory and trying to match tiles together to score lots of points off of various metrics we can do. One of the coolest things about the game is, though, not only can I expand my tiles out, but I can build upwards as well, which is a thing we saw put to good use last year in games like uh, Cooper Island and and a few others as well. And I love that idea. I think it's great here. Jen and I, we've had a blast playing it so far. This is definitely a keeper for us. While, um, what was it? The uh, Splendor was not. And I'm super duper happy with it. I love, finally, I've got a game with awesome little poker chips that just feel so good to hold and fondle while you're waiting for your turn. And then you plop them down and and you you clack them when it's not your turn and all that stuff. But a really cool and interesting uh, take a uh, very dynamic take on tile laying as well, which I, for my money it was a it is a stronger core game than the engine building. Although it, it, Splendor is a, is, a, is a fine game, but Angkor is its superior in every way, and it's my number nine of the month. Then we move on to number eight. Rolled West, which is a spinoff to an excellent heavier or more midweight Euro called Gold West, which is all about. Um, you know, mining and claiming territory and building up boom towns in the American frontier. That's what Rolled West is as well. And pretty much almost all the big beats of Gold West are here, shrunk down into super tiny portable roll and write form. And this is a great roll and write uh, for a few reasons. One, the production value is fantastic because they kept the super tiny footprint size. It's a t- you can almost put it in your pocket, but it comes with um, you know uh, dry erase markers and foldable uh, player boards, so you'll never run out of pieces of paper, which is very much appreciated. But that aside, the dice you're rolling are 12 sides little golden nuggets that are just a joy. I mean, why aren't there more 12 D12 games out there? Um, they're used to very good effect here. But all that aside, the coolest thing about this game is when it's my turn and I'm rolling the dice and deciding how am I going to use them to you know, build up territory camps or send goods back east or complete contracts or build up Boomtown, whatever I want to do with my dice, 
you care because after I roll the dice, there's no roll, 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 you know, until you get what you want. You roll and you take what you can get. And that might say, think, some people think, oh, well, this game is like totally, you're, you're at the fate of the dice, you have no control. But here's what makes the game special when it's not your turn, when the other players are rolling, you see what they roll and you get to bank one of their dice that you will get to use on a subsequent turn, on your next turn or maybe halfway through the game. And when you're going, I'm getting to bank dice on your turn. And that gives you so much more control and so many opportunities to build up and pursue different strategies. And it's great. Jen and I, we've played this, uh, gosh, over a half a dozen times now. And we're still enjoying different ways, different combinations. And of course, um, you know, what do the dice give us? How are we best going to leverage it? And, uh, but you know, that extra level of not direct interaction because, oh, there is an interaction because, hey, if I build this particular building, you can't build anymore. If you complete this contract, I can't complete it anymore. Or um, when you roll the dice, if you can see one of those dice is what I need desperately, you can set it aside so nobody has it because everybody sets aside one die after they roll. So there's some interaction. But the other thing I love about Rolled West that I'm so enamored of is the developers took the time to pay attention to two-player gamers. Because remember I was talking earlier about, which game was it? Um, Manitoba. The problem with some games where, hey, when it's not my turn, I can still do things on another player's turn, that, you know, it, it, it kind of can feel a bit off in a two-player game. And I often wonder, why don't they replicate a third player? You know, this was true for Space Base. It was a big problem for Space Base, which is otherwise an excellent... Um, Oh, what would you call it? Uh, Machi Koro style dice. Everybody does actions when the dice get rolled game. But there was no replication of a third or fourth ghost player. I say all this because Rolled West did it, and it proves just how simple and easy and streamlined it is, and how greatly it improves the two-player experience. So I am over the moon, super-duper happy that I do not feel like there was a compromise in the two-player experience because the developers actually took the extra time to pay attention and try to dev- to provide as rich an experience for t- for couples gamers like me and Jen as for regular gamers who play you know three, four, or five. So anyway, that's my number eight of the month, Rolled West. Then we've got number seven, Ausonia. I think this might be my last paid preview, or maybe there's one more coming up. I don't remember now. But this was a paid preview for Games on Kickstarter. I think the Kickstarter might be over now, which if you missed it, that's too bad because, oh my gosh, folks, this is excellent. This is a, on the surface, a pretty straight deck builder. You know, where you start with some weak cards, you, over time you buy better cards, and the whole game is making your deck stronger and stronger, and trying to get to those turns where, oh, the right cards came out in unison, and they combo together, and it's amazing, and I score a lot of points, and we're racing to, I don't remember if it was either 50 or 60 points to see who wins. You know, that's pretty bog-standard uh, Dominion-inspired deck building. What makes a Sonia unique? More than any other deck builder I can think. I cannot think of another deck builder, and I've played... I'm going to go so far as to say most of them at this point. It's rare to find a deck builder that puts so much focus into the gameplay elements on giving you control over your deck. That's what this game is all about. Um, you know, There's several different mechanisms that you can use to temporarily set cards aside, to hold on to cards from round to round, to uh, permanently uh, install cards as ongoing powers you've got, to dump cards, to do everything you need to do so that... Well, you know, I've, I've said this in the past. To me... 
a deck building game is an engine building game. Your deck of cards is your engine. It's just a terrible engine because you never know what it's going to give you. Whereas a good engine is reliable and it spits out what you want. Turn after turn, a deck builder, well, this is why I felt like giving you this turn. I gave you this portion of your engine. A Sonia is a deck builder where you can um, always or almost always get or be working very actively towards those perfect turns. And you know, when you get those perfect turns in a Dominion, they feel so amazing. You get so much done. But there is a bit of luck of the draw. In Asonia, more than any other deck builder I can think of, you make your own luck. And that's what makes it special. Yeah, it's got really great art and um, you know a ton of a huge variety of cool effects on all the different cards as well. Um, it's a lot of game in a tiny, tiny box, and I was very impressed. Obviously, because it's my number seven of the month, uh, Sonia. Then we move on to number six, the Trails of Takana. And you know what, folks? This is a roll and write. Oh, it's a flip and write. You flip cards instead of roll dice. And I don't have to talk much about this because, you know what? Just this morning, I made my run through for it live. Although, if you'd watch the last Rotto Runs Through Live, another new thing the return of Rotto Runs Through Live every month. Jen and I will be doing a live simulcast where players can watch along and sometimes even play along and ask questions. Um, we did one this month for Trails of Tucana. And if you go watch that, you can download a piece of paper and print it out and play with us, and you will see why this is a phenomenal, wonderful uh, roll and write. Or random and write. Random and write. Uh, where players are racing to build the longest trails across the fictional island of Tucana to you know connect villages together and score lots of points, and it's awesome. Don't take my word for it. Play the game with me and Jen and see if you can beat us. You'll definitely beat me. The question is, will you beat Jen? Spoiler alert, she beat me. Will you beat her? Uh, it's my number six, though. It's fantastic. It's from actually the designers of Avenue, which was another amazing flip and write uh, route building game. I think Avenue is a little bit better, but I love uh, Trails of Takana to pieces, too. And there's definitely room on our shelves for both. My number six of them on Trails of Takana. Then we got number five. Oh! I lied. There was one more. This is the last paid preview. My number five is The Phantom, the card game. And, as I said, this is a paid preview for a game that's going live on Kickstarter tomorrow, I believe. Or no, today. No, or yesterday. Uh, right around this time. Um, I think it goes live on May 1st, if I recall correctly, which is maybe the day I make this live. I'll have to figure that out. But anyway, long story short, uh, I know nothing about The Phantom, which, uh, interesting trivia bit, is widely regarded as the first costume superhero in literary history. Uh, not the first superhero. I mean, you could give that, you know, su- or, you know, costume vigilante or, you know, vigilante type. I mean, that's like Zorro and some other famous characters. But the Phantom dressed up in skin tights like what we think of as superheroes today and fought crime. And, uh, you know, and, and was the direct inspiration for Batman and Superman and what came after. So it has a hugely important place in the, in the history of modern pop culture entertainment. And which is why I'm so happy that this game is amazing and lives up to that uh, the, to its pedigree. This is so much fun, and I mean it's it's kind of unavoidable. It really, in a lot of ways, reminds me of my number two game of last year, Marvel Champions, because this is a cooperative adventure card game where uh, the Phantom. And Diane, his longtime love interest, if you're playing two-player or you can play solo, it's a solo or two-player only game, are fighting off, dealing with all kinds of disasters and villains and whatnot. It actually comes with three storylines in the base box that are based on real storylines from the comics over the years. And they use actual art from the comics, and it looks fantastic. I love it, with this great retro comic feel to all the cards. 
But the gameplay is fantastic. And the thing that makes it special is every round, after the bad guy, from the bad, the, the Destiny deck, a bad advantage drawn, and you never know what it's going to be, but there's a lot of really clever, interesting things that really mix up the flow of the game based on what comes out, which is why the game has tons of, even if you play the same storyline, it will play out differently based on the order of events that the events, that the Destiny deck draws. But after that happens, you get to draw three cards from your deck. And, uh, and this is a deck building game, because over time you'll get more and more cards in your deck. But... It's that harsh restriction. You get three cards. That's all you've got to play with this turn. And every card is a multi-use. You can either discard the card to get some resources, like stealth or um, you know the skull that the, the Phantom is known for, having a skull ring and stuff like that. And you use those resources to pay for other cards, to put the other cards into play, or to activate the effects of other cards you already have in play. So unlike other games where, hey, once I've paid for the card, it's something I can use. No, no, no. you got to pay to get the card into play, and then you got to pay to use the card. And But the problem is, you're only drawing three cards every turn, so you're not getting that much in the way of new resources. So this is a game of a, with a very, very tight economy, where you have to pull off really cool, smart, and clever moves to be able to get yourself to into a situation where you can beat these objectives and beat the timer or beat the boss or whatever it is, because there's so much variety in all the different stories. And if all that weren't enough, um, you there's this campaign mode. It's not really a campaign mode. Your deck does not get reset once you finish the game. The cards, um, some of the cards that you have earned that went into your deck, get to stay. So over time, the more you play with the Phantom deck or the Diane deck, they get stronger and stronger. Uh, And to be able to rise to the challenge, because you're so much more powerful, there are multiple levels of difficulty for the three different adventures you can play through. So as you get tougher, the challenges get tougher, and everything about this game just sings. It's amazing to me. This is from, I believe, a first-time designer. And it's incredible just how well he has knocked it out of the park and made a game that stands toe-to-toe with the best um, you know, card adventure game that Fantasy Flight has ever put out. Uh, you know, it's that good. I mean, if you're a fan of The Phantom, you got to check it out. If you're a fan of cooperative superhero adventures, it is definitely worth checking out. Everything, I love everything about this game. It's my number five of the month. The Phantom, the card game. Then we got number four. Homesteaders, New Beginnings. And I did a run-through for Homesteaders many years ago. And you can go back and watch that. uh, Because I don't know that I'll be doing a run-through for the expansion. Because really... New Beginnings does not change the core gameplay of Homesteaders. Homesteaders has always been one of the best engine-building Euros ever. It is one of those zero-to-hero games where you start with nothing, and by the end of the game, you have built, from a tiny little camp out in the middle of nowhere, you have built a thriving metropolis, and the stuff you pull off at the end of the game is un- is just like... It's an order of magnitude more powerful than what you're able to do at the beginning. So it always takes you on a very satisfying journey as you grow in power and pull off insanely cool chain combos using all the different buildings you've invested in as you build another American West Frontier homestead that grows ultimately into uh, from a settlement to a town to a city. So that's half of the game, is this great engine building, escalation, uh, curve game. The other half of the game is an amazing auction with the best rules for two-player auctions the industry has ever seen. Other games since Homesteaders have copied the idea of how to do two-player auctions, but nobody has bested it. So the original Homesteaders was amazing. Why didn't I keep it? The one flaw Homesteaders had was zero setup variability. Almost exactly the same game after game after game. And that's a problem for me and Jen. So I was so excited about New Beginnings. 
and New Beginnings delivers. But not in the way I thought. It adds a few new buildings. I figured it would add a whole bunch of new buildings, and then you randomize what buildings are going to be from game to game. So you're forced into different kinds of, of growth paths. But that's not the case. There's some new buildings, but they just get added to the old ones. Every time you play, you're always going to have access to the same buildings in the same order. That doesn't change. Here's what changes. As part of setup, you lay out eight or no, ten cards face up. These are event cards. Every round, over the ten rounds of the game that you're building up to your city, an event is going to happen. And you know every single one of them, right from the get-go. And right from the get-go, because they're all face up, you are making plans for, oh, is that what's going to happen in round eight? I got to be ready for that. Okay, so that means probably by round five, I have to have built a building that will give me the resources I need to take advantage of that in round eight. <gasps> but in round six, if I build this building, it'll get destroyed in round six. How do I do this? Um, it reminds me, it's a simple system, and it reminds me of Stefan Feld's In the Year of the Dragon, which did the same thing. It starts out with 12 events for the, for the Year of the Dragon, and you know them, and you are planning... It's some of the deepest long-term planning in Eurodom. Taking that idea that works so well and bringing it over to Homesteaders, which is already such an amazing game, makes Homesteaders a high eight now, as far as I'm concerned. It is phenomenal. And it provides that replayability, because every time you're going to get a different combination of events or a different order of events, and it's really going to mix the feel up of the game, and I loves it to pieces... Um, and by the way, for people who might say, ah, in the Year of the Dragon, that's a terrifying game because in the Year of the Dragon, all the events, or almost all the events, are super duper hardcore. You will get destroyed with droughts and plagues and earthquakes, and it's just, you're gonna die! Um, in, in, in New Beginnings, most of the events are actually positive. And so it's all about the anticipation of getting yourself into position to take advantage of the events when they come along. So that's actually a really nice uh, uh, it, way to implement it as well. I love everything about it. It's my number four, the expansion, Homesteaders, New Beginnings. Let me move on to number three. Another expansion for Baron Park, The Bad News Bears. And I love everything about this expansion except for the title because it has absolutely nothing to do with the 70s era baseball kid movies. Um, I, I wish they'd stuck to you know the Grizzlies title that it was, uh, Grizzlies in Los in the original German, but that's okay. What's in a name? A rose would smell just as sweet, and this is a sweet, sweet expansion. Uh, Baron Park is already one of the best polyomino tile laying games out there on the market. It would easily be in my top five, I think. Um, and it, it was perfect. It needed nothing. It was all about drafting these tiles to snap together, to expand your bear park, uh, to make all kinds of you know beautiful habitats for the bears to live in and comfort and um, you know and, and all that. So, what does the expansion add? Two things, or th I think there's three, but there's two main big things it adds as different modules you can turn on off. One is grizzly enclosures, and what's special about these? is that they are huge. They are the biggest, craziest, twistiest uh, pretzels of polyomino tiles I've ever seen. They give Isle of Cats a run for its money, and they're awesome, and they're very challenging to use, but if you can plan and use them well, they are huge. They are monster game changers. Although they are hard to earn, and then once you've gotten them, they're hard to deploy, but they, are, they really up the puzzle level significantly to be able to use them to good effect, so I love them. But even more, if there's one thing that I never realized I don't like about tile layers, which is saying something, because tile laying is one of my favorite gameplay mechanisms of all time. Baron Park, Bad News Bears, made me realize, wow, tile games are really flat. Of course they are. You're just laying tiles. They just lie there flat. There's no heft to them. There's no physical weight to them. They, 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 they have no structure. 
And the other module that I love in Bad News Bears is monorails. Because every time you put down a particular type of polyomino tile, the green tiles, which in the original game were just kind of like the filler tiles. They were just like to fill in the holes that you couldn't quite get with all your big crazy bear tiles. They were just like the green filler tiles. Now, when you place those green tiles, not only are you filling in holes that you need to fill in, but you have the opportunity to put um, monorail pylons or pillars on those green tiles. And as you put more of these pillars out, you get the opportunity to create a little three-dimensional monorail system that will travel all throughout uh, your barren park. Your yeah, your bear your bear park, and it looks awesome. It, it it's it's it really ups the toy factor of the game. And when you're done playing and you you see these wonderful bear parks you've made, but then you also see this really cool monorail system that is three-dimensional and it rides high above them, and that could have been where you got most of your points because it's a very interesting race element to it. Everything about this is great. It made an already phenomenal game even better, which is why it's my number three of the month, Baron Park, the Bad News Bears. Then number two, I finally got to it, folks. Robin of Loxley. Remember earlier I was talking about Uwe Rosenberg Renaissance with his new two-player focus on games like nothing like he's ever done before? Robin of Loxley is like nothing Uwe Rosenberg or really anybody has ever done before. This is such a clever two-player-only game. And um, at its heart, there is a grid of tiles that represent treasure that you, as Robin Hood, are going to steal from the rich. Although this game doesn't really focus on giving to the poor. Uh, instead, you are jumping around, uh, you know, traveling around this grid, stealing all these treasures, trying to do set collection. Get a bunch of red treasures or blue treasures or black treasures because you have to complete certain objectives. The thing is, as you move around this grid, you don't just move up, right, down, left. You move like a knight. And in fact, your character, your Robin Hood character, looks like a knight from chess. And so you always have to move over uh, one and up twice, or move down twice over once or whatever. And so that severely limits your ability to get what you need to get. Much like, I mean, I remember growing up, those uh, in the do they still have those in the newspaper chess puzzles? Where okay, here's the setting, and you you get to you get to do two things with your knight. How are you going to solve this problem? And you're like, oh well, you know, and it, it kind of feels like that. It, it's really nice. I mean, I mean, who doesn't love the knight from chess? Even if you don't like chess, I mean, the way he bounds around and is un is unbounded. You know, can get past anybody, but still is really restricted and very hard to deal with. Making a whole two player set collection game out of that is brilliant. But that's only half the game. Because the other half of the game is you have a bard who is on the outskirts of this grid. As part of setup, you make the grid of treasures, and then you put around the outskirts of the grid a whole bunch of objective tiles that is a path that the bard must travel. And the bard is singing your tales of daring do. For the bard to move forward on this path, you have to collect the right sets of treasures. So you're working on two games at the same time, trying to plan out how to move this knight piece to get the stuff you need, but then also trying to plan out what set collection do you go for and when do you throw sets away to basically skip past um, objectives uh, to be able to move this bard as fast as possible? And these two separate games mesh together in a really beautiful, puzzly way. I've done a run-through for it. You can check it out. Uh, it's my number two of the month. It's fantastic. Uwe Rosenberg is back, baby, and better than ever with my number two, Robin of Loxley. But that still leaves the number one of the month, folks. Walking in Provence. Which I believe I'm saying correctly. I think in previous videos or in podcasts I've said Provence, and I apologize for that. So I'm pretty sure it's Provence, Walking in Provence, and this is awesome. This is actually the sequel to uh, Walking in Burano, which came out two Essens ago, and I thought it was amazing. Uh, it was from Emperor S4, which I believe is a Taiwanese publisher. 
I'm pretty sure. I think they're in Taiwan. And you know, it got some it got some buzz coming out of Essen, but then AEG picked up Walking in Murano. And I'm so glad they did because it's such an amazing little card drafting uh, game. Oh, Walking in Murano is great. You can go watch my run through for it. I played it solo, it was awesome. Walking in Provence is even better. Because not only is it my new game of the month for April 2020, it is my it is now in my top 10 games of 2019 when it came out. It is so amazing. What is it? Well, one, I don't have to tell you because you'll be able to watch my run through for it next month. The voters have already chosen. They want to see me run through it. But in a nutshell, this is a card drafting game. You like Sushi Go or Seven Wonders. And the cards you take, you have to play in front of you to expand the fields of full of flowers in Provence. Full of flowers and forests and windmills and, and t- villages and all kinds of elements. And this is one of those games where you try to stack cards on top of other cards like Patch History, or Han Shu, or Hanging Gardens, or uh, Circle the Wagons. And you know, that's always a really fun kind of jigsaw puzzle of a game. We love that. Um, But this game goes so far above and beyond most of its ilk, because not only are you trying to stack these cards to make the right um, combinations of elements to to, uh, score objectives, to get points, it's not just a matter of getting the, uh, the the stuff together. You have to get it in the right position so that your meeple who walks around on the landscape that you're building can stand in certain spots and take a picture of everything. Because that's who we are in this game. We're trying to take pictures of all these particular combinations of elements. So not only do we have the jigsaw puzzle thing, but then we also have the spatial thing of, right, I can get them, but is there a place I can stand my meeple so he can take the picture? And not only that... My meeple, who takes pictures, has an aerial drone that also takes pictures. So I am, at one point, trying to puzzle out how to complete these objectives, but in a way that the the drone can see some of them, and the drone takes 360-degree pictures, while the uh, meeple can see other ones taking traditional directional pictures. And the game comes with these like mylar plastic sheets that you can put over your board when you put the meeple down and say, look, my meeple can see everything, it'll be in the picture, it is awesome. It is fantastic. Jen and I instantly fell in love with it. Um, it's like I said, one of the best games of 2019. And I'll be running through it, and I'm just hoping, hoping, triple finger crossing, folks, that AEG or some other publisher gets in touch with them and picks this up because this deserves to be seen by players who love drafting and who love puzzly little um, card games and who love really fresh, original gameplay mechanisms. Everything about Walking in Provence is phenomenal. And that's it, folks. Phew! That was um, my 24 games, my roundup of April. I'm exhausted. Oh man, geez, Louise. Shay, take it away. You gotta, you gotta help me out here, buddy. It's too many games, as I previously said. And um, folks, I'm not done. I'll be back again next month and talking about a whole bunch more. And uh, Shay should be back uh, talking about some of the games he did as well. I wonder if Shay should appear in these. That's interesting. I hadn't even considered that till just now. Hmm. I don't know. But folks. Welcome to near year nine of Rado Runs Through. It's an exciting time for us. It's not necessarily a great time for the world. And I hope all of you out there are are safe. I I, I hope the you know the, the current troubles in the world haven't haven't hit you and your loved ones hard. Chances are some of you watching right now, you have been hit hard, and my heart goes out to you. I'm the luckiest man in the world that 
hey, I'm just continuing to live my life the way I always do. I always stay home. I always, I, I, I was born to social, I've been social distancing since I was seven years old. So um, yeah, I mean, Jen and I, we're, we're great. I hope you guys are doing okay too. I hope everybody gets through this. We're all in this together, folks. And I'll see you in a month's time. Have a nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye.